morning, everyone. <laughs> My name is Ashton, and uh, happy Super Bowl Sunday, right? Happy uh, Valentine's Day coming up, and um, I'm really grateful, and it's an honor to continue this series, uh, Behold the Savior. Uh, before we do that, I want to shout out uh, the Youth and Family Ministry. I think I got a slide. I might have a slide. Maybe I do. Okay. Larnie got me. So the Youth and Family Ministry, this uh, last week we had this thing called Solid Rock, which is a devotional where teens throughout New York and New Jersey come together, worship God, and our Jersey teens planned it. Now, I think we got a few slides before, Larnie. We'll see. Back that way. No, other way. Yeah, there we go. Look at those faces. Wow. <laughs> it was cool. They, they, uh, they planned everything. Um, they planned the idea what Solid Rock would be about. Uh, they wanted it to be about love. Uh, they wanted to have a Black History Month component. Uh, they wanted to talk about different types of love. They volunteered to share about those different types of love. They made uh, gift bags for each person who came, kind of with an encouragement card and candy and snacks. And, and it was an honor for Des and I to partner and the rest of the teens, uh, workers, and the parents uh, to make it a really awesome time. So the planning, the hosting, the music, the sharing, the serving, it was really, really beautiful. So shout out to the Youth and Family Ministry uh, here in the East, here in the West. They're amazing. So as we get into this uh, Behold the Savior topic, I want to talk about the word behold. The word behold has a definition. Behold means to see and to observe. And we can move on to the next slide. I don't think this is going to work. It means to see, to observe, to, to see these impressive things in someone. And when Luke writes his gospel, he has things in mind that he wants the audience to behold. The gospel of Mark is likely already written at this time and has even been read by Luke, so the details of Jesus' life were starting to circulate. But as Luke had been traveling with Paul on his missionary journey, he observed that the church's membership and the reach of the church was expanding. He decides to put together some writings that would help connect with these new diverse audiences and the Gentile audience that was in the church. So he wrote a two-part series. Volume one was the Gospel of Luke, and volume two was Acts of the Apostles. And Luke was intentional in the themes that he highlighted throughout his gospel account. You can move on a few slides, Ronnie. Here, I, I was reading uh, my ESV study Bible, kind of get some background on the book of Luke. And one of the themes in the book of Luke is this idea that there's this great reversal taking place in the world. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And one of the emphases is that Luke placed in his gospel, something he wants us to see, is that God's love is for everyone. For the poor, the tax collectors, the outcasts, the sinners, the women, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. And there's even some stories that appear in Luke's gospel that don't appear anywhere else, like the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. One of these qualities about Jesus that Luke wanted his audience to see 
they wanted them to behold was how welcoming Jesus was to all people. Jesus was willing to be a friend of sinners, to out, of outcasts and outsiders. Now, this is not a title that Jesus gave himself, but we're going to look at Luke 7 and where some of this idea comes from. Hold on, is it working now? Yes, yeah, oh, it works, it works, amen. <laughs> Luke 7, starting in verse 33. It says, for John the Baptist, this is Jesus uh, talking to the Pharisees. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. So Jesus doesn't necessarily call himself a friend of sinners. He definitely doesn't call himself a glutton or a drunkard, right? But I would argue that these allegations that Jesus is a friend of sinners is something Jesus is going to have a really hard time beating. Jesus never tries to explain away this accusation. He just, he just leaves them with this. He says, wisdom is justified or proved right by all her children. He said, just look at the outcome of my actions, and you will see. There are choices that Jesus made throughout his life that would definitely earn him in this title. And what the Pharisees thought would be a reputation or a rumor that would discredit Jesus in the eyes of the public ultimately is a quality about Jesus that draws people to him and draws people to him to this day. One of the most obvious evidences of Jesus being a friend of sinners is in Luke chapter 5. We're going to turn there next. We're going to read Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. The slides will be up on the screen, but you can turn there as well. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat? Why does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's talk about what's happening here. The calling of Levi, son of Alphaeus, also known as Matthew, by the way, it shows up in Matthew, it shows up in Mark, and it shows up in Luke. We call them the synoptic gospels. What that tells me is that this is a pretty important story. Now, the scripture starts with after this. So what happens before? Jesus is, has healed and forgave a paralyzed man who was carried on a mat by his friends to Jesus. But after that, Jesus comes across a tax collector sitting at his booth. This man was very different from the one that Jesus previously interacted with. Matthew was not paralyzed. Matthew was empowered. 
by an oppressive, controlling Roman government to take taxes from Jewish people, his people. Now, I want you to picture a tax collector's booth. Some of y'all looking like, I have no idea <laughs> what that looks like. It's tough, right? This is, we're, not, we're not in this day and age. Matthew's booth was not a cubicle at the IRS, right? It was something very different. Matthew collected customs taxes. So taxes on people who were exchanging goods in this high traffic area in Capernaum. His booth was in the public eye. Matthew was rich. Some, some tax collectors actually paid for their position as a tax collector so that the rich could get richer. But Matthew for sure got rich from being a tax collector. It was common to, for embezzlement and extortion. Roman taxes were high. Tax collectors made them higher. Tax collectors were likely protected. Romans had to protect their money. So you can see the Roman guard there. This is a, a, a screenshot from a clip from The Chosen. There's stories of tax collectors in the first century hiring muscle to shake people down and get their money. There's stories in the first century of zealots, right, this religious extremist group that would actually target tax collectors to try to get back at the Romans because they hated the fact that Rome occupied Jerusalem. And when they would try to kill tax collectors, even though they were Jewish, the rest of the Jewish people would turn their head. Maybe they deserve it. For all those reasons and more, there was another way that Matthew was different than the paralyzed man that Jesus interacted with before this. The paralyzed man was surrounded by friends. Matthew was alone. The Romans didn't fully accept him. The Jews didn't fully accept him. He wasn't aligned with the Jewish people politically. He was not aligned with them spiritually. And that earned him and all tax collectors a, a special label, traitor. Um, I wrote in here, I can't, I, I have to say it. I wrote, tax collectors are ops. That's just kind of in my, it's just in my study notes. Some people know what that, that means. Some people don't know what that means. It's all good. So if you didn't, teens, if you weren't listening, tax collectors, ops. Okay. So the lowest level of sinners, these tax collectors, they were kept at a distance socially. They weren't even allowed to worship at the temple, guys. Jesus noticed the way that sinners and tax collectors were treated. He noticed that people wouldn't fellowship with them. People wouldn't eat with that person. And he knew why. He knew their sin. But Jesus also knew their value. These people were still incredibly precious and valuable in God's sight. So while Jesus was never blind to the flaws and the sins and the struggles, those things didn't push him away. Those things brought him closer. So in the midst of, you know, him traveling a busy street or area in Capernaum with his disciples, Jesus sees Levi. For the first time, third time, hundredth time, I'm not sure, but I'm sure that when he saw Levi, he loved him. And he asked compassion on him. And he invited Levi to follow him. And then he partied with him. And he ate and he drank and he socialized with more tax collectors and sinners. Rabbi Jesus is at tax collector Matthew's house. And the Pharisees don't like this. 
obviously. If you read the Bible, the Pharisees are always complaining about something. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Eating was symbolic of accepting someone, of fellowship with someone. It was a cultural form of acceptance to sit across the table from someone. They were concerned with Jesus' methods and the message that it would send to others in the community. But the Pharisees failed to realize that those methods that Jesus had sprouted from Jesus' mission and the message that was on his heart. The way Jesus saw Matthew was radically different from how the Pharisees did. To Jesus, Matthew's life and his choices didn't make him hate him. It just made him want to help him, wanted to lead him towards healing. To Jesus, Levi, Matthew, is not a lost cause. He's just a lost sheep. Jesus tells us over and over, every time the Pharisees complained about about Jesus spending time with sinners, Jesus would respond and state his purpose over and over. In Luke 15, he said, wouldn't you go after a lost sheep if one was separated from the flock? The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Lost sheep aren't uh, stray sheep. They actually belong to the shepherd. They belong with the flock, even though they're not currently with them. They are lost, but they can be found. Lost people belong to God. So Jesus is not going to leave them wandering, separated from the flock, unaware of dangers that await them, and no clear direction or idea of how to make their way back home. He won't leave them like that. He is going to seek them out, and he's going to attempt to guide them back. This is Jesus. This is who he is. And I don't know what Luke or Mark or Matthew or any of those guys kind of wanted to, you know, stick out the most about this story, how he wanted it to resonate with people, how they wanted it to respond, how the Holy Spirit wants us to respond. But I want to highlight two responses that we can have to this passage that we've been studying. And the first response is to just be like Christ. Be like Christ. We are not Jesus, but we are his disciples. So, of course, we can't be Jesus, but we can be like Christ. We are not healing anyone. We're not anyone's savior. So there's some things that Jesus does in reaching, connecting with people that we might not be able to do. However, we are followers of him. We are called to reflect him. So we should share his heart, his vision, his, the way he saw people. We should see people like Christ. We should love people like Christ. We should speak to people like Christ. Remember, though, you're not Christ. Don't go up to someone and say, you've had five husbands and the husband you already have ain't your husband. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that, right? But <laughs> we should actively be supporting the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of others. We should be spending time with people, listening, asking questions, drawing out hearts, sharing our faith, inviting people to gatherings of the body. Be warm, be welcoming, be a friend, be like Christ. Being like Christ means speaking the truth in love. 
Jesus was intentional with the time he spent. He had a, he had a purpose. He partied with Matthew and his friends for a reason. And I don't know if he like did a three-point sermon in the middle of, of the dinner table. But we definitely see Jesus preaching and saying truth that might even make people feel uncomfortable when he interacts with them. His inclusiveness didn't make him shy away from telling people tough truths. You know, I look at this passage in, in uh, Luke 13. And maybe it, I lost it. I lost my powers. I can't make the screen move. <laughs> in Luke 13, Jesus is traveling. People are asking him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus says, make every effort. Enter through the narrow door. He says, but hey, some people of you, some of you are going to respond and say, but we ate with you. We drank with you. You taught in our streets. And he says, I'm going to reply, I don't know you. To some of them, where I don't know you or where you come from, away from me, you evildoers. Jesus says some tough things, some hard things to people. But he did say it in love. I think love builds a bridge for tough truths to walk across. Truth lands better with love. And in most scenarios I can think about as I look through the Bible, no matter how deep or spiritual the conversation gets, it has to be done with gentleness and respect. These are some great scriptures behind me that remind me of that. In Mark 10, 21, and 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Being like Christ also means loving others when it's difficult. Because that's what Jesus did. I'm sure it was hard for Jesus to love Judas, to love the thief on the cross, to love tax collectors, Romans, Pharisees. Check out Jesus' words in Luke 6. It says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. This is a high calling. Like, this is hard. This takes checking our hearts because being a friend of sinners may mean, in some scenarios, being a friend to someone who sinned against you. We have to check our heart about that. We have to check our biases. The Pharisees' kind of ideologies and upbringing, a lot of stuff made it difficult for them to love tax collectors. Did you know that some of the tax collectors during that time actually were baptized by the time Jesus was preaching his message? Some of the tax collectors in the Bible, it says in Luke 7, heard John the Baptist preaching, went out to the wilderness, heard the message of repentance, and got baptized. Some of them were open, but the Pharisees could not see past the fact that they were tax collectors and reach out to them. There are open people that didn't get reached because the Pharisees were blinded by their bias. I think it happens today. We all have biases, all of us. And the work is in making ourselves aware of them so that we can work on our hearts and be prepared to help people.
because there are gay people who are open to the gospel. There are transgender people who are open to the gospel. There are people who drink and smoke heavily who are open to the gospel. There are people who curse every other word that are open to the gospel. There are ultra wealthy people open to the gospel. There are people begging for money on the street open to the gospel. There are gang members open to the gospel. There are people in jail open to the gospel. There are people in nursing homes open to the gospel. There are Trump supporters open to the gospel. There are Biden supporters open to the gospel. There is that guy with the Blue Lives Matter hat and the bumper sticker who's open to the gospel. There's the girl with the Black Lives Matter t-shirt who may be open to the gospel. The celebrity, the politician, the IG model, the gamer, the athlete, the artist, it doesn't matter. They may be open to the gospel. The Muslim, the Jew, the girl who doesn't go anywhere without her tarot cards, the, the, the hardcore atheist, the person who has no self-esteem and the person whose ego could not get any bigger. There is that person who you just can't put your finger on it, but the vibes are off. They might be open to the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. But we don't get along with everyone. We are not willing to befriend and love everyone. Some of us do well with this. Some of us struggle. I think we all struggle. I've seen it. I've seen it in this church. We can't stay here. Being like Christ is the goal. He would lean in and love all of these people that I mentioned. No matter what, even if they weren't open. A sincere love shouldn't feel transactional. There's something about a love that doesn't expect anything in return. That feels different. We can hope for beautiful outcomes out of our relationships with different kinds of people, but ultimately, our love should remain no matter what. No matter what the response. No matter if, if they're in the church, if they've left the church, our love should remain. Our love should not be so easily influenced by circumstance. All right. <laughs> Being like Christ um, means also, uh, I, wanna, I want to, kind of like a disclaimer, being like Christ doesn't, doesn't mean risking your righteousness, right? Because Jesus, Jesus put his reputation at risk to love people, but never his righteousness at risk. The Bible does make it clear that as you help others, as you live and interact with people in the world, that it's essential to be mindful of when you are being influenced and when you're doing the influencing. You have to be wise. You might need to seek advice in certain situations. Use your spiritual common sense. There are certain scenarios and situations that clearly need to be avoided. And the Bible talks about that. I have some scriptures behind me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good character. Be aware. 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and of sober mind. There's an enemy out there. Satan is after us. You know, one of the ways that I feel like I've been called higher in the area of being like Christ, being a friend to sinners, is uh, at my job as a teacher. Um, 
in some of my interactions, and I, I'll tell a specific story that really helped me um, see how love can move someone's heart. So there's a, um, a teacher, I, I'll say for, for the sake of the story, her name is Emily, that used to work at my school. And I had a meeting with Emily. She was my supervisor. She was the head of all the science and math teachers at my school. And we were just talking about, I don't know, teacher stuff, right? She was mentoring me, giving me guidance, and so on and so forth. Um, and Emily is, is amazing. Emily's an amazing science teacher, an amazing leader, very personable, one of the like, most bright personalities and people that I've ever met. So even though we're talking teacher stuff, she's still trying to get to know me. She wants to know kind of about my life, about my family, and so on and so forth. And, and Emily also openly shares about herself. Emily, was, Emily is lesbian. She's married to a woman. She was adopting a kid in a, in a few weeks at that time. And that was a huge part of her identity. She was actually one of the first couples who got married in Montclair when the same-sex marriage laws passed. This is like a huge part of her identity and a very meaningful part of her. And she asked me, so what are you going to do this weekend? What are you up to? And kind of naturally, I just mentioned I'm going to church. And, and kind of her demeanor, her response kind of shifted in the conversation when I mentioned that I was going to church that weekend. And she started kind of processing out loud. She asked me questions like, wait, are you religious? Are you a Christian? And I'm like, yeah, you know, that, I'm, I'm, we're moving on. And she says, wow, you know, I got to be honest, if I knew that earlier, I, I don't know if we would be friends. If I, if I knew that before I kind of worked with you for this time, I, I don't know if, if, if we, would, we could be friends because I, she said, I, I wouldn't even eat with a Christian. I wouldn't want to sit at the table with a Christian. I don't like how they make me feel. I don't want to sit across the table from someone who their entire time they're thinking and looking at me and saying, oh, this person's going to hell. That's how she saw Christians. Um, but uh, Emily knew me, had been around me, and, and she saw my relationships with my students. Now, my students, I would say about over, over the course of my teaching at this, at this particular school that I worked at, about a third of my students were in the LGBTQ community, right? Sometimes this past year, almost half of my students were in the LGBTQ community. So students who were gay, transgender, non-binary. She said, your students love you. These gay kids love you. I've heard how they talk about you. Some of them, you're you're their favorite teacher. And I see how much you love them. So she's like, I never would have expected that, that you're a Christian. And, you know, she's kind of very sciencey in her head. And she says, well, I I guess I have to uh, change my hypothesis towards Christians. She said, you know, I had another coworker. She's a Christian. She told me that Jesus is about love, right? Is that what he's about? And I said, yeah. And we talked for a while. And we talked about um, God, her background. She grew up Jewish. We talked about um, doing a double date one day in Montclair. <laughs> um, I was very, I was, I was very moved. And I'm not telling the story to lift myself up. I'm trying to lift up love because it will really move someone's heart 
because I saw someone who observed love and said, okay, that love is coming from Jesus. I haven't really seen that before, but I, I kind of have to, I have to maybe believe that. I may have to change my mind. I maybe can't group all Christians together the same way because I didn't hear those things she said about Christians. I was not surprised. You're probably not surprised. Maybe it hurts to hear it because a lot of us here are Christians, but we're not surprised. When I was in high school, this group called the Westboro Baptist Church traveled from wherever they came from in the country and set up a, a protest in front of my school because the school I went to in Brooklyn had one of the largest gay straight alliances in the country. And they held with these signs that said, God hates blank and fill in the blank. And don't let your imagination run wild because some of the things were very vile. And they were yelling at the top of their lungs while we were in school. That's the type of stuff that people see. Now, we don't have to, it's not our personal responsibility to necessarily counteract that, but we need to see the environment that we're in. And we need to love, love people. We need to love people. Mm. Um, another response to this story, our last response is, is a, a shorter one, <laughs> is to see yourself in the story. Like I said before, we're not Jesus. We're the sinners in this story. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You too are a sinner. Not less of a sinner or more of a sinner than others. In God's eyes, we all fall short. We are all a long way from perfect and the frequency of sinning and the type of sinning that we do may have different effects in our life here on this earth, but they land us in the same place, the place of needing forgiveness, the place of needing a friend who is willing to look past our past, who's willing to invite us at our worst, and who's willing to have a friendship with us, friendship with us that transforms us to be our best. I want to read this scripture in Isaiah 25 as we close. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9, is a prophecy of the Lord. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich, uh, rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth the Lord has spoken. It will be said on, this, on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This prophecy is fulfilled in the friend of sinners. Jesus came to earth, invited everyone, including sinners, to a feast of salvation. On the menu was God's truth and God's justice and his love and his mercy and also death. But Jesus ate death so that we can enjoy all of the other things that God offers us in his kingdom. John 15 says, greater love 
has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. Thank God that Jesus is a friend of sinners because that means he's a friend to us. That's good news. Amen.